It's the 19th of July in the year of our salvation, 2008, and this is Father John Zulsdorf, Father Zed, with another podcast. We welcome as our guest today St. Ambrose of Milan, who died in 397. We'll hear from his work De Mysteriis, excerpts of which have been used in the Office of Readings in the Liturgy of the Hours for about the last week or so. Also, we are going to hear an interview with Father Robert Paisley, who is the rector of Mater Ecclesiae Church in the Diocese of Camden in Berlin, New Jersey. He'll tell us about his experience of having a personal parish for the older forms of Mass and sacraments for some years now. For years, as a matter of fact, before Sumorum Pontificum went into force. In the ancient church, Bishops took personal responsibility for the sound catechism of their flock, especially those to be baptized at the Easter Vigil. Now, De Mysteriis by Ambrose of Milan is a compilation of addresses given to the newly baptized during Easter week. These are probably addresses which were written down by stenographers as Ambrose spoke them, and then they were reworked later by Ambrose himself. Uh, there's another work similar to uh, De Mysteriis called De Sacramentis. It's a little bit longer, and uh, there's also an exposition of the creed. So what we have are, uh, are living examples of how a bishop would catechize his flock with mystagogical teaching. That's the technical term for the introduction of the neophytes, newly baptized, to certain things that were not taught to them as catechumens. Now remember that the baptized were taught many things about the faith during their time as catechumens, but they weren't taught certain things which were like secrets only that those who were initiated into the Christian mysteries were supposed to know. Uh, so they were not taught about uh, the Mass and what the Eucharist is, and even Today, uh, some people still make the distinction about the mass of the catechumens and then the mass of the faithful that corresponds to the uh, the liturgy of the word and then the Eucharistic liturgy, the sacrificial part of the liturgy that follows. And uh, so the mysteries were reserved until after Christian initiation of baptism. And so they had these sacraments that they received, meaning baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, had to be explained to them. So after baptism, they were given instruction by the bishop about the sacraments. Remember the the words sacrament, sacramentum, and mysterium can really be interchanged in many ways, both in our present-day liturgical prayers in Latin, in Mass, when you hear mysterium and sacramentum, uh, you can even take the word sacrament or mystery, and uh, if you're translating it from Latin, you can say sacramental mysteries, and you wouldn't be off target. But these words were interchangeable, uh, both in our liturgical prayer, but also 
uh, in the patristic period for the writers in Latin. Uh, sacramentum, of course, was a, a word that was introduced probably by the North African writer Tertullian, and it refers to an oath that would have been taken by uh, probably military personnel, but I'm, I'm getting a little bit off of our point here. So our newly baptized are gathered around the bishop and they are instructed about the mysteries, the sacred mysteries surrounding baptism and the creed that they had to learn and the Lord's Prayer. Remember, these are things that they wouldn't have heard, right? They wouldn't have participated in before baptism and also the meaning of the Eucharist, what confirmation is, and so forth. So they're gathered with the bishop, and he's speaking to them in this mystagogical instruction. And these addresses that we hear, um, the address that we hear today, uh, comes from the end of this collection, uh, De Mysteriis, and it especially deals with the Eucharist, and especially with the words of consecration, of both the bread and the wine, how bread and wine can be changed into the body and blood of Christ, and how this change is not contrary to reason, uh, even though it surpasses our reason, and it is a mystery which Christians believe. Now, as you listen, now as we read, you're going to want to tune your ears to how Ambrose shifts into giving examples which is a usual step in ancient oratory. Before this, he's been setting up arguments, and then he moves into uh, the next stage, which is providing examples to back up what he's saying and to make it very concrete and clear. Also, uh, listen for the word type. A type. A type is a figure, which is a foreshadowing of something to come later. Ambrose and most of the fathers of the church refer to things and people and objects and events of the Old Testament as prefigurings or foreshadowings of the events of the gospel and the deeds and works of Jesus. In other words, they show how God in his plan was setting things up uh, before so that we could recognize the deeper mystery of what uh, was going to happen later. Listen also to how Ambrose makes use of the Song of Songs. Some people call it the Canticle of Canticles. Ambrose uses the Song of Songs very often in his works. It is very beautiful poetic language, and so Ambrose uh, can easily find in it the figures and types foreshadowing Christ and Christ's relationship to his church and all the sacred mysteries, which are the sacraments. Now, when I read the English in the version found in the English-language Liturgy of the Hours, I was kind of disappointed with it. And also, I noticed in the Latin volume of the Liturgy of Hours, the Liturgia Orarum, that uh, the text is uh, actually cut up a little bit. They cut out a section. They cut out all the section for the, uh, the Liturgy of the Hours that included the references to the Song of Songs. So I pulled my trusty edition of Ambrose's work in Latin off of my shelf and also got down an old translation from the 1960s by De Ferrari, which is much better than what we find actually in the Liturgy of the Hours. So you will hear rather more today than what we find in the actual Office of Readings, uh, including that section where Ambrose uses the Song of Songs, uh, the Canticle of Canticles, I'm not quite sure why they cut it out. Probably 
because it was would have made the reading you know much longer but i don't know sometimes uh sometimes maybe the more prudish get a little uncomfortable in reading the song of songs I, I have a sneaking suspicion that's one of the reasons why it's not in there uh, but uh, part of the main argument of the whole work is emphasized toward the end of the reading uh, listen for this listen to how Ambrose talks about the spiritual order surpassing the natural order and how we Christians have to learn to think beyond the limitations of nature in respect to what God can do and in respect to the mysteries, the sacraments. He'll bring this very, very clearly uh, to a strong conclusion at the very end of the work. And I read all the way to the end. I'm reading from about paragraph 52 to the end of De Mysteris. Uh, also, notice at the end how Ambrose talks about receiving the truth of the sacrament, the reality and this is something we have to also uh, take into consideration. Ambrose is talking about the interior reality, the change that actually happens to a Christian. He becomes a new creation, a new birth. Now these are not like physical things, but they are mysterious sacramental realities. They really do take place even though we don't sense them. The reality is there even though our senses can't um, can't you know ex really come up with the changes and finally you also want to keep your ears tuned for the reference to how our forefathers ate spiritual food and drink this is probably a reference to the exodus story of the people of Israel who ate and drank uh, mana and water from the rock those were spiritual foods and drinks because uh, because they were provided directly by God and so he calls them spiritual food and spiritual drink, even though they were physical things. So now let's listen to St. Ambrose of Milan's De Mysterii, starting at paragraph 52 and working to the end. Advertimus maioris operationis esse gratiam quam naturam et adhuc tamen profetice benedictionis numeramus gratiam. Codsi tantum valuit humana benedictio ut naturam converteret, quid dicimus et ipsa consecrazione divina ubi verba ipsa domini salvatoris operantur. Nam sacramentum istud quod accipis Christi sermone confititur. We notice that grace is capable of accomplishing more than is nature, and yet thus far we have mentioned only the benediction of a prophet. But if the benediction of a man had such power as to change nature, what do we say of divine consecration itself, in which the very words of our Lord and Saviour function? For that sacrament which you receive is effected by the words of Christ, but if the words of Elijah had such power as to call down fire from heaven, will not the words of Christ have power enough to change the nature of the elements? You have read about the works of the world, that he spoke and they were done, he commanded and they were created. So cannot the words of Christ, which were able to make what was not out of nothing, change those things that are into the things that were not? 
for it is not of less importance to give things new natures than to change natures. But why do we use arguments? Let us use his own examples, and by the mysteries of the Incarnation let us establish the truth of the mysteries. Did the process of nature proceed when the Lord Jesus was born of Mary? If we seek the usual course, a woman, after mingling with a man, usually conceives. It is clear, then, that the Virgin conceived contrary to the course of nature. And this body, which we make, is from the Virgin. Why do you seek here the course of nature in the body of Christ, when the Lord Jesus himself was born of the Virgin contrary to nature? Surely it is the true flesh of Christ which was crucified, which was buried. Therefore it is truly the sacrament of that flesh. The Lord Jesus himself declares, This is my body. Before the benediction of the heavenly words, another species is mentioned. After the consecration, the body is signified. He himself speaks of his blood. Before the consecration, it is mentioned as something else. After the consecration, it is called blood. And you say, Amen. That is, it is true. What the mouth speaks, let the mind within confess. What words utter, let the heart feel. Christ then feeds his church on these sacraments, by which the substance of the soul is made strong, and, seeing the continuous advancement of her grace, rightly says to her, How beautiful thy breasts have become, my sister, my spouse! How beautiful they have become from wine! And the odor of thy garments as the odor of Libanus! A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a garden enclosed, a fountain sealed. By this he signifies that the mystery should remain sealed within you, lest it be violated by the works of an evil life and by the adulteration of chastity, lest it be divulged to whom it is not fitting, lest it be spread abroad among infidels by garrulous conversation. So the custody of your faith should be good, that the integrity of your life and silence may continue undefiled. Therefore the church also, preserving the depth of heavenly mysteries, hurls back the severe storms of winds, and invites the sweetness of blooming grace. And knowing that her garden cannot displease Christ, she calls to the bridegroom, saying, Arise, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow through my garden, and let my ointments flow down. Let my brother go down into his garden, and eat the fruit of his apple trees. For it has good trees and fruitful, which have touched their roots in the water of the sacred fountain, and have burst forth into good fruits, with a growth of new richness, so as not to be cut down by the axe of the prophet, but to abound with the fruitfulness of the gospel. Finally, the Lord also, delighted with their fertility, replies, I have entered into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spices. I have eaten my food with my honey. I have drunk my drink with my milk. Understand, faithful one, 
why I have said food and drink. This, however, is not doubtful, that in us he himself eats and drinks, just as in us you read that he says that he is in prison. Therefore the church also, seeing so much grace, urges her sons, urges her neighbors to come together to the sacraments, saying, Eat, my neighbors, and drink, and be inebriated, my brethren. What we eat, what we drink, the Holy Spirit expresses to you elsewhere, saying, Taste and see that the Lord is sweet. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Christ is in that sacrament, because the body is Christ's. So the food is not corporeal, but spiritual. Therefore the Apostle also says of its type, Our fathers ate the spiritual food and drank the spiritual drink. For the body of God is a spiritual body. The body of Christ is the body of the divine spirit, for the spirit is Christ, as we read, The spirit before our face is Christ the Lord. And in the epistles of Peter we have, And Christ has died for you. Finally, that food strengthens our heart, and that drink rejoices the heart of man, as the prophet has recalled. Thus, then, having obtained everything, let us know that we have been regenerated. Let us not say, How were we regenerated? We have not entered into the womb of our mother and been born again. I do not recognize the course of nature. But no order of nature is here, where there is the excellence of grace. Finally, the course of nature does not always produce generation. We confess that Christ the Lord was conceived of a virgin, and we deny the order of nature. For Mary did not conceive of man, but received of the Holy Spirit in her womb, as Matthew says, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. If, then, the Holy Spirit coming upon the virgin effected conception, and effected the work of generation, surely there must be no doubt that the Spirit coming upon the font or upon those who obtain baptism, effects the truth of regeneration. Generatum ex virgine Christum Dominum confitemuret nature ordinem denegamus. Non enim ex viro Maria concepit, sed de Spiritu Sancto in utero accepit, ut dicit Matthäus, quia inventa est in utero habens de Spiritu Sancto. Si ergo supervenien Spiritu Sanctus in virginem conceptionem operatus est, et generationis munus implevit, Non est udique dubitandum quod superveniens in fontem spiritus, vel super eos qui baptismum consequuntur veritatem regenerationis operatur.
That was St. Ambrose of Milan's work, De Mysteriis. I really enjoy reading Ambrose, uh, especially in Latin. Ambrose's Latin is beautiful. Remember that his sermons, his Latin style, and his oratory captured the attention of St. Augustine of Hippo, no less, before his conversion. Augustine was a very highly skilled orator. He was the the rhetor for the imperial court there in Milan. That's what had brought him to Milan, that job. And it was Ambrose who helped Augustine see that the language of Scripture wasn't barbarous and rough, that it was worthy uh, in its own style, its own Latin style. Ambrose also helped Augustine finally get it through his head how God, immaterial God, could become incarnate, how the Word could become man. That was a momentous step in Augustine's uh, progress into Christianity. It was also Ambrose's hymns sung by the people in the church which moved Augustine so much that he wept. And he says, Augustine describes in his confessions how the the hymns entered into him and and his tears ran down. The, The hymns entered into his heart and the tears were good for him. And so Ambrose helped that way with the affective side of Augustine's conversion, not just the intellectual side and the aesthetic side of understanding that scripture, the Latin scripture, wasn't ugly and rude. Matter of fact, the hymns, the hymns of Ambrose were important uh, to Augustine probably all through his life. Uh, We remember also in Book 9 of the Confessions how Augustine sang one of Ambrose's hymns when his mother Monica died of a fever in Ostia. They were on their way back to North Africa and there was a blockade and they had to spend time there. Monica caught a fever and died and Augustine was so upset but he couldn't show outwardly his emotion. But he sang, he sang a hymn of Ambrose, a, a hymn which is still used in the liturgy today, the hymn Deus Creator Omnium. So Ambrose was a highly skilled man. He came from a senatorial family. Uh, the, he was the governor of the region. And he went from being a non-baptized man, a non-baptized politician, to being Bishop of Milan in about a week or so. He was named Bishop by popular acclaim after the death of the old Bishop. They didn't know who they were going to have or who they should have, but someone was inspired to say, let it be Ambrose, Ambrose for Bishop, and the crowd took it up. And so it was done, and and he had to be baptized and consecrated in just a very, very short time. This was something that Jerome... St. Jerome, their crotchety old Jerome, found absolutely intolerable. He hated Ambrose anyway. He was probably very jealous of him. I'm guessing that St. Jerome was maybe a little jealous of the power and the influence that that Ambrose had, especially with Pope uh, Damasus. He, uh, Jerome was Damasus's secretary, and uh, Ambrose would come to Rome from time to time and in the presence of Ambrose, I'm sure that Jerome was probably not uh, given a lot of attention. I'm, I, I'm just it's just supposition. They also had uh, Jerome also had a bone to pick with Ambrose uh, concerning a fight that he had with his old friend Rufinus and so forth. But anyway, Jerome said of Ambrose 
uh, Heri Catechumenus Hodie Episcopus. Yesterday he was a catechumen, and today he's a bishop. And Ambrose, Ambrose as a matter of fact, uh, uh, because he drew so much on the works of of Greek writers, Ambrose knew Greek very, very well. Uh, Jerome would accuse Ambrose of plagiarism, saying that he was like a crow, a croaking raven who dressed himself up in the more colorful feathers of other birds. So there was no no real affection on the part of Jerome for old Ambrose. But Ambrose was a real force. Uh, he pretty much won all of his disputes on uh, political uh, infights, and uh, he was a tremendous force in imperial politics. He was the tutor of a young emperor and the moral check and balance on the most powerful man in the world, Theodosius. Truly, Ambrose is one of the great doctors of the church, and he merits our constant attention, especially for his beautiful Latin. I'm now very pleased to present an interview that I did today with Father Robert Paisley of the Diocese of Camden in New Jersey. Father is the rector of Mater Ecclesiae Church in Berlin, New Jersey. He'll talk to us about his experience of having this personal parish where the preconciliar mass and all of the sacraments have been in use for some years. Now that Sumorum Pontificum has de-restricted all these things, people are talking about personal parishes. We know about the personal parish that was set up in Rome at Santissima Trinità dei Pellegrini and how in other places around the world bishops are starting to set up personal parishes. Well, here's a man who's had years of experience doing this and uh, his example and advice could be very helpful to uh, our understanding of how best to implement Samorum Pontificum. Let's get right into the interview. I'm happy to be talking today with Father Robert Paisley, who is the rector of Mater Ecclesiae in Berlin, New Jersey. Hello, Father. I'm glad you were able to join us today. Good morning, Father Zulsdorf. I'm very privileged to be able to be here today. Now, uh, Father, um, uh, you're a rector of a church rather than a pastor. Is that right? Correct. Well, tell us, what a re- what is a rector? What's the difference? See, I was a rector once of a church in Italy. But uh, perhaps you could explain to the people listening what a rector is. Well, um, a pastor is in charge of a parish. He has a canonical status as a pastor. It's a canonical entity. Where, uh, when Mater Ecclesiae was set up, it was so small, it was only 70 families. The diocese did not really want to establish us as a full parish yet. And yet they didn't want us to be a, just a mission church that was attached to a regular parish. So they set up a, a, an interesting uh, a combination where it is a mission of the local territorial parish, but that I am the rector of this place. I have the right to run things here by myself without the pastor of the local parish being involved. And even though we are technically a mission of the territorial parish, we function as if we were a parish with me as the rector. So it's more of a canonical setup than it is practically speaking. Practically, we run like a parish. Canonically, we're set up as a mission, and I'm the rector of this mission. Right. So this is uh, a church that functions as a parish, but it's 
because it's within the boundaries of another parish, the territorial boundaries, you're a rector rather than a pastor. Correct. Now, of course, the bishop could uh, set you up as a personal parish. Yes, he could. And, uh, you know, we always hope that that will happen down the line. Uh, but as I said, we, we not only have the rights of a personal parish, because when we were set up, we uh, have no boundaries. Anybody in the diocese can join here, just like a regular parish. They can register. Uh, we have parish roles. Up to, we've gone up to about 550 families now. So you've grown from 70 families to 550. Correct. Well, that's, a, that's, that's good growth. And how long have you been set up? We were founded on October the 13th, 2000. So this is, will be our eighth anniversary this year. Well, that's pretty good growth, I'd say. I'd say it is. It's been continuous. Like, you know, some people come in, then they'll just drift away, but it's been a steady, continual growth that has continued to increase, and the increase has far outweighed anybody who drifts away. And let me just take a stab at this. Uh, I imagine that you have families with lots of young children. Oh, yes. We have families with 10, 6, 12 uh, children, and we have so many young people here, it's just unbelievable. A lot of homeschooling? A lot of homeschooling. I would say that probably a good majority of our people homeschool. Now, Father, you have there uh, use of all of the old liturgical books. I imagine that in addition to uh, Holy Mass celebrated with the 1962 Missal, you're also doing your baptisms, anything that needs to be blessed. You're using the old uh, Rituali Romanum, is that right? Yes, we are. We're using all the old books, and we do all the, uh, the sacraments. I've even done confirmation three times myself here with the permission of the bishop. Do you have uh, the Novus Ordo there at all? No, we don't. Uh, this place uh, was... Uh, outside the church for many years from about 1967 till about 1995 and when we were established one of the rules that was agreed to with the bishop with the group who was negotiating for the place was that we would be exclusively 1962 uh, sacramental books and that the Novus Ordo would not be celebrated here publicly because there are other places where that can be done without any problem. I see. So originally there was a group there that wasn't in unity with the local bishop, Correct. and then it was re then the group was reconciled, and that's when it was set up as a as a um, as a rectorate. Yes, uh, in 1995, the original owner and uh, was uh, Brother Joseph Natalis. This place was called Holy Family Monastery. And when he passed away, uh, the place went into some type of legal dispute, and the people who were going here uh, formed an organization called the Oblates of St. Jude, and they legally sought to retrieve the property, which they did. Uh, for a brief period of two years, Bishop McHugh at that function as a chapel for the Mass only uh, with a Canadian priest that was in here temporarily. And then in 2000, when Bishop DiMarzio came in, he decided to establish it as this mission with... Uh, full rights and all the sacraments. I see. Now, so effectively, you have had the experience of running a parish uh, using all of the old liturgical books Correct. for quite a few years now, even before uh, Summorum Pontificum came out, which, of course, uh, in one of its articles permits the establishment of personal parishes for the exclusive use of all of the older liturgical books. So you've been doing now for a long time what a lot of people are just, you know, kind of starting to think about. Yes, yes, for sure. 
Well, perhaps you might uh, you might talk about what your experience of this has been. Um, you know, from the point of view of uh, perhaps vocations, and uh, also um, you know, just maybe some stories that you've had from people perhaps being reconciled to the church out of other groups uh, because of your your work there. Yes, um, it's been an amazing journey for me. I, I could have never imagined the wonderful things that have happened since I've been here. I was a parish priest for 10 years uh, before, after I was ordained. Then I was in high school work for eight years, and I was sent here after 18 years of being a priest in regular parish work and school work. So going from the Novus Ordo uh, milieu and all the things in regular parishes into this was quite a change, and I had to do a lot of homework to get myself up to snuff on what I was doing. But uh, it, it's, it's, we've reconciled a great number of people to the church that were so happy that they could finally be part of the larger church again. They really never liked being separated. Of course, on the other side, we've had some people who felt that I was not traditional enough who've left uh, and gone to other places, but that they are in the minority, not the majority. Uh, they, uh, we've had um, vocations. We had a, a young man go to the seminary, went in for a few years and left, but now two more have gone in to replace the one that left, and one more is considering going into the fraternity of St. Peter. Uh, we have a young lady who is uh, about to enter religious life. Um, so vocations are a constant uh, thing that we talk about here, and they see young priests, they see young seminarians. The people are inspired by this. They encourage vocations. We have a huge enthusiasm of these young families. One of my priest friends who comes here always jokes when he sees all the little children running around, what do you call those creatures? We don't have them in our parish. <laughs> the and, children. Yeah, and when you go to, to many parishes, you only see the older people. God bless them, but where are the younger people? Well, they come here, and it's just amazing to watch them. Just in this last year, our young uh, fathers, uh, we started a, a rugby team. We have the the uh, the, uh, the the teenage griff. They're called the Mater Ecclesiae Griffins. They have the teenage group. We have the little griffins. We have a, a, a field hockey team that's forming. Uh, we have all this enthusiasm uh, with uh, different enrichment programs that different parishioners are offering. Uh, and as a matter of fact, some of the people in our, in our uh, parish are forming their own homeschool academy to help the homeschoolers with courses that they may not be able to teach themselves. So I've never seen so much activity. I've never seen so much lay involvement. We hear all about lay involvement these days. These people are taking the ball and running with it with an enthusiasm that makes me breathless. They're literally taking the ball It's uh, with your rugby team. They certainly are. As a matter of fact, they're in a tournament today down at the uh, Jersey Shore. The, um, you mentioned young priests. Um, are young priests coming around? And do they want to learn the older form of Mass? Are you, are you getting help from them, too? Yes, um, I am. I'm in the process of teaching uh, three priests right now who are coming on a regular basis. I, uh, the, the young priests attend often, and uh, seminarians are always dropping in here to uh, see what's going on. And one of the wonderful things in Sumorum Pontificum is that even though Ecclesia Dei had allowed the traditional form of the Mass, and we uh, were functioning here as a, as a mission parish, um, people were still afraid to come. They, they were somewhat reticent because they thought, well, maybe we're a little bit on the edge, and you know, I don't know if this is where the church is going. It's a nice thing for now. But since the Mormon Pontificum, there's been like this sigh of relief that we, don't have to, we are now part of the normal church in every way, and they can come here freely, and that fear has kind of dissipated greatly. Yeah, so it's, it's no longer that you're an anomaly. 
correct. We're not an anomaly anymore. As a matter of fact, people are almost jealous that we had a, a seven-year head start. Yeah, I suppose. Are there other priests in, in your area who are interested in having the older Mass in, in their parishes? Or, uh, you know, I, I, do you have the, the idea, perhaps, that this is being, you know, isolated there? Well, that's interesting. Um, there are two, two other, three other priests who have it occasionally in the diocese. Um, and I think one of the things about this place is because it's well-established and we have a, a good program and everybody knows about it, that it seems that, the, and we're in the most populated area of the diocese, it seems to me that a lot of the priests are also saying, you know, we can't do this, we don't have the capability, we don't really want to do it, some of them. Go to Mater Ecclesiae because they have everything you want and it's not that far away. Mm-hmm. So we've actually become very popular among those priests who don't want to do it to send everybody here. And I say, send us your poor and your tired because they turn out to be very energetic. Sure. Uh, all right. Um, now, um, what do you see uh, the future of this, uh, of your place being? Is it, do, you, do you think you're going to be have to expand? I, I've been at your church. Um, I, and you have done just marvelous things with it, um, but it's you know it struck me that maybe with that growth of families, you're going to have to have a little more room one day. What do you have any future yeah, plans? We don't have any immediate plans. Um, we do have when we when the place was uh, purchased by the diocese, they had to purchase it for uh, four hundred thousand dollars. I'm sorry, four hundred eighty thousand dollars. And so we've been not only spending money to fix the place up and get everything going and paying our diocesan assessments and goals and all those things, but we're paying down the debt. So we are just went below 400000 and so we have quite a way to go, and we're going to probably start working on that. But we have to get the debt. We have to get rid of the debt. We have to uh, plan, we, and we do need more room. I mean, I, I really think if we had double the size of a church, we'd have double the size of the crowd coming here because to get in at Sunday Mass, you can't get a good seat now because it's so crowded. Do you have uh, help there, or are you alone? No, I'm alone. I'm alone, and I try to get some priests to help me when I go away on vacation or and so forth, but it's still, you know, as a diocesan priest in a diocesan institution, you're pretty much dependent on the bishop and whether or not he would send you someone, and if he's not in favor of that, then you pretty much have to just go along with the program. Yeah, and with the, uh, with the shortage of priests everywhere, there are a lot, of, a lot of men, even in large parishes, who are alone. Exactly. Yeah. Now, do you have any other uh, any special events coming up? Well, we have our wonderful Assumption Mass, which is uh, something we started way back when we, we, we began as a mission, and it's on August the 15th at our cathedral in Camden. It's a Mass of Thanksgiving. Uh, every year we try to highlight one of the great uh, masterpieces of Catholic music uh, that we can't do in our smaller chapel. So this year we're doing uh, Monteverdi's Misa della Capella and some Gabrielli, so it should be a very beautiful event. So every year you have a solemn, uh, traditional Latin Mass in the Cathedral of Camden. Correct. All right. Does the bishop ever come to uh, pontificate? No, not, the bishop has never come to it, but he's been very generous in giving us permission and supporting us to continue to have it. And uh, this is an annual event, right? It is an annual event, yes. And uh, what we do, we ask our parishioners to donate money toward the uh, cost of the music and the musicians and the instrumentalists and all of that stuff. And every year, we've uh, the goal this year is $6,500, and we are only about $500 short of that goal. Well, it sounds like uh, when, just like everywhere, when you actually provide what the church 
asks for, the people step up and, uh, and, and contribute, and they're very generous. They are very, very generous. And, uh, you know, I, I, there's a, I, this, this reminds me that when you offer what the church allows, they are generous. It, it reminds me of a story. We're talking about the young people. Last year, I had a young man call me from St. Joe's Prep in Philadelphia, a Jesuit's prep school, very uh, good reputation. And he called me out of the blue, and he said, Father, you know, I know I heard you have the traditional mass. Can I come down and talk to you? Which I said, fine. So he came down, and at, at, the, at the prep, they have this magnificent church, the Jesu, which is a huge, magnificent old church. And he was asking all these questions about the old mass. And I said, "How? why did you come here? What, what made you come down here to ask these questions? And he said, you know, he said, I looked around at that old church. He said it was so magnificent with the high altar. And he said, I've heard about the old mass, and I've heard about Gregorian chant. And I figured, you know what, all of that, was, this building was built for that. And I want to see what the mass was that inspired this building. And so you have that whole connection of doing what the church wants, the beauty of the liturgy, and this inspires people and brings them around, and it's just amazing. And it's amazing the effect that it has on young people, too, when they begin to learn what their heritage is. You know, every, every Catholic has all of this as part of their own patrimony. And it was a patrimony that basically has been kept away from us for for decades. Uh, we, we've been, you know, we, we're waking up, I think, uh, as a church to the possibility that maybe we've been robbed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you asked about, you know, the future of this place. I think one of the major purposes of a place like this, and I think every diocese should have one, is that it becomes a resource center and an example of how it should be done, because we strive here to do it exactly by the book, the way the Church intends with our high mass and the music, and even with the low mass, we go right by the book, and we try to do it with great reverence and respect. And I think that that is a place where people can go, and I always say this is almost like a a little oasis. If they want to come here just to get the experience and take it with them wherever they go, it begins to build up a whole new attitude uh, at about about what we believe and about the mass and about the fact that they were told you know people didn't participate it was boring and they see that this is absolutely not true and they take that enthusiasm with them. Father Paisley, thank you very much for uh, consenting to be interviewed. I hope we can uh, maybe do it again sometime. Excellent, Father, and I really thank you for the opportunity. That was Father Robert Paisley, rector of Mater Ecclesiae in Berlin, New Jersey. I was so glad that we were able to connect today. And uh, I did the interview using a kind of a strange technique. I I couldn't get my Skype to work uh, this morning the way I wanted it to. And, uh, well, what happened is that I I took a phone, uh, a portable phone that had a speaker on it, and turned on the speaker and then picked up another phone and... Uh, that I could actually talk into. Then I locked, uh, then I shut the the telephone with the speaker in a closet with a microphone hooked up to an MP3 recorder. (laughs) And that's how I wound up getting the interview. So that explains a little bit the sound quality. But uh, I think it worked uh, well enough, and we certainly were able to understand uh, what Father Paisley had to say. We're very grateful for his comments today. With that, I'm going to wrap this up. This podcast number 65, I think. Gosh, we've done 65 of these things already. 
And uh, I hope that you're coming to the blog, wdtprs.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. What does the prayer really say? Feel free also to use the donation button on the left sidebar and uh, on also the entry for the podcast themselves. I'm very grateful for your donations and they help uh, a great deal. Uh, so thank you all to all of you who have used that donation button. Till next time, please pray for me as I will for you. Mm-hmm.